Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Brian Earp. Brian is the Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and the Hastings Center, and he is a research fellow in the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. Brian's research is cross-disciplinary, and it spans several areas, including ethics, psychology, and the philosophy of science. His work has been covered all over in the media, and his latest book is Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Today, we're going to be talking about drugs that can help us to fall in and out of love. For example, is there a drug you can take to enhance your relationship or deepen your connection with your partner? Is there a drug that can effectively numb you to feelings of jealousy and get rid of the green-eyed monster once and for all? Also, can you take a drug to help you get over your ex or to move on after a traumatic breakup? We're going to explore the answers to all of these questions. Of course, taking drugs to help us manage our relationships and breakups is controversial, and it raises a number of important ethical and legal questions. It also raises some interesting questions about authenticity in relationships. I mean, are you staying true to yourself if you literally have to drug yourself to make your relationship work? This is going to be a really fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Brian, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on. I am thrilled to have you here to talk about love and love drugs. I know we haven't met in person yet, but I've been following your work for a while, and you always make interesting and thought-provoking posts on some of the sex research listservs that I'm on. So I'm excited to have a chance to dig in and talk about some of that with you. Well, it's a, it's a mutual appreciation club. I similarly follow your work, and it's an honor to, to get to talk with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, before we get into your book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional journey, and specifically how you got into studying and writing about things like love, sex, and relationships. I know you have some pretty diverse research interests, and this isn't the only area that you focus on, but how did this come to be one of the focal points of your work? Sure. Well, I started my undergraduate life studying cognitive science, and partly why I did that was so that I could incorporate streams from philosophy. I was taking philosophy of mind type classes, as well as psychology and linguistics and anthropology. So I think it's been true for as long as I've been in a university environment that I've been hungry for applying different lenses to complex problems and not positioning myself within one one very narrow discipline or one set of tools. And so that that I think has been a constant. And in terms of thinking about love in particular, that had always been a private matter for me, something that I just would reflect on in my own life as a, as a person like anyone else does. And, you know, reading poetry and watching films and engaging in relationships and trying to figure out how best to have meaningful, happy relationships and, you know, facing lots of stumbles along the way and heartbreak and difficulties. And I didn't start thinking about love and relationships academically really until I was at Oxford, where my, my co-author on the book, Julian Savalescu, runs the center that you referred to, the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. And Julian is, is interested in a lot of areas, too, but one of them is, is what might be characterized as a, a human enhancement literature, a kind of techno-futurism, where the idea is how might we use 
emerging technologies to refashion ourselves as human beings? How might we intervene in our own natures to potentially rise to the challenges of the day or to help us meet our ideals? And so uh, Julian and uh, a colleague of ours, Andrew Sandberg, back in 2008, wrote a paper uh, in the journal Neuroethics that tried to extend these human enhancement type arguments into the realm of love and relationships. And the thought was, given that neuroscientists are beginning to understand more and more about what's happening in our brains when we fall in love and out of love and form attachments and so forth, what if we got to the point where rather than simply describing these neurochemical systems, we could use biotechnologies to potentially intervene in them? And then would that mean that we could create in some sense, real life love drugs and or love potions of a sort. And that raises all sorts of ethical questions. You know, how much control do we want to have over our romantic feelings or our sexual lives? So that was the initial paper. And then I was brought onto the project to start to explore these ideas in a more practical way. So the first paper was rather theoretical, somewhat speculative, almost a little sci-fi. And then what I've been trying to do over the last eight years of working on this project and and putting this book together with Julian is getting down to the specifics of what's really possible. You know, what drugs do we use today for uh, medicinal purposes, for example, that may be having unintended indirect effects on our romantic relationships? And then also, what are some drugs that are coming around the corner that might be even more powerful? So that's where we start to talk about things like psychedelic drugs, MDMA, which are being reintroduced into mainstream medicine as adjuncts to psychotherapy for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. But there too, we're saying, listen, these drugs, when we take medications that affect our neurochemistry in really deep ways, that doesn't just affect us as individuals and our personal symptoms. It also can affect the very brain-level underpinnings of our interpersonal connections and bonds and, and commitments and so forth. And so at the very least, we argue, we should be sensitive to that. We should be alert to the fact that we're already taking love drugs uh, unbeknownst to ourselves, and we, we just shouldn't be moving forward in the dark. I love everything you just said, and there are so many things that I want to dive into a little bit deeper, but something that really struck me was that question you raised of how much control do we actually want to have over love in relationships? And, you know, I think one of the the beautiful and also scary things about love is just kind of how uncontrolled it is in a lot of ways. Right. And so, you know, this idea of imposing biochemical control over love, I think is, is really fascinating. But before we dive into that, let me step back and ask a broader question. You know, you're a philosopher. So what does love actually mean? Um, and before we can talk about love drugs, I think we need to define what love actually is so that we can talk about how it can be biochemically altered. So what is love? Sure. I mean, there, there are at least two ways of approaching that question. One is a relatively neutral sort of scientific description account of love. And I'll say what that is in a second. And the other way of thinking about love is as a normative concept, as something that we value as something that's a part of human societies, but also human systems of meaning. And so when you open up the concept of love and you think about it from that perspective, different sorts of things kind of fall out than if you were talking about love as something more like, um, you know, something that emerges from our, our mating psychologies or something like that. So let, let me first give a big picture, sort of neutral description of love. And that is, it's something that is certainly related to the fact that we're a sexually reproducing species. And so there are certain aspects of our natures that are built into just about all of us that are at least uh, the necessary 
machinery of love that's under under the hood that if it weren't there the sorts of things that we experience and describe as love wouldn't be happening so certainly having something like a libido or a sex drive is part of at least romantic love having feelings of attraction that draw us toward particular partners that's something that also you know has some evolutionary purpose and that ultimately we need to mate to reproduce so we want to be drawn towards some particular people and so that's thought of as a sort of attraction system and then in the case of long-term pair bonds, particularly those that might, for some people, involve child rearing, you have what's called the attachment system, which is a part of our brains that compels us to, to stay with someone long enough to potentially engage in these, these parental, parental responsibilities. And so that's going on under the surface. That's the sort of biological evolutionary precursors of love, if you will. Now, when we talk about love in society, we're often talking about something that we feel. I mean, up until recently, we had no real sense of what was going on in terms of the biology of love. That's only in you know the last several decades that we've begun to unravel those mysteries. So the, the long cultural tradition of talking about love is something that has to do with what it feels like to have that stuff going on under the hood and to engage with another human being in a way that, that is, is down to you know subjective feelings and then the meanings that we ascribe to those feelings. The final bit is that this biology and, and subjective psychology is only sort of two-thirds of the picture. The last third is, is zooming out wider to, to sociocultural and historical factors. And, and these are the sorts of things where what we read about love or what people say about love or what is represented about love in movies and so forth, those very concepts and discourses and ways of talking kind of filter back into our own subjective experience where, for example, we may be feeling really drawn towards someone. And we might ask ourselves, is this love? Am I feeling love? Or am I feeling something else? Am I just obsessed with this person? Or um, am I just sexually attracted to this person, but it isn't really love? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to kind of triangulate between our subjective feelings and, and the concepts of love that are present in the culture. And, and we, we try to figure out whether what we're feeling is something that counts as love according to the norms and the scripts of the society. And interestingly, that can change over time. So, for example, I, I was watching a YouTube video, and I, I think I even mentioned it in the book. It's a debate between Christopher Hitchens and somebody from the Catholic Defense League or something like that. And this was not that long ago, back in 2002. And Hitchens is talking about same-sex relationships and same-sex love. And when he uses the word love there, members of the audience, who are presumably mostly uh, conservative Catholics, sort of laugh in this, in this way that's almost creepy to to behold um, as somebody who supports same-sex love, um, because to them it sounded like a conceptual error. They just thought, well, love is, is only something that can happen between a man and a woman, in their view. So their, their script for love excluded same-sex bonds as counting as an instance of the category. And so you can start to see that different groups with different values at different historical and social epics can construe love differently. And then that, of course, affects how we experience love. So, so love is really a biopsychosocial thing that's playing out at all these levels. And what's, what's new, what's happening you know, in the last 10 years or so, is that, that that biological aspect of love, which had been just a black box until recently, well, that's starting to now be something that we can begin to, to reverse engineer and look into and figure out how that might be affected as well. And so we're just trying to say, when we, when we talk about love, when we think about love, when we experience love, we have to really look at love from all these different angles, not just, you know, in terms of how love is represented in pop songs. 
Yeah, and I, I love the explanation that you gave, and thank you for being very comprehensive. I talk about love as this biopsychosocial phenomenon whenever I teach my human sexuality course, and I usually start first by asking my students to define love, and you tend to get pretty simple answers, but you see a lot of variability where some people define it as a feeling or emotion. Some people define it as a behavior. You know, it, it's something that means different things to different people. But then when we start talking about it and critically analyzing it, they start to see just how complex love is. And there, there are so many different things that go into it. And it sounds a lot less romantic when you start analyzing yeah. it from that perspective. But I'm really curious about this biochemistry aspect of love and how we can potentially use drugs and medications to enhance love in a relationship. And as you already alluded to, and as you discuss in your book, you've written a lot about MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy, which is a drug that a lot of people just think of as a party drug and you take it for a good time. But you've talked about how this drug can potentially help distressed couples by bringing them even closer. So how does that work and how can MDMA help struggling partners? Right. So there's some precedent for this because up until the early 1980s, MDMA was not a prohibited substance. And it wasn't really until it leaked out of a therapeutic context and was used by party goers who were staying up all night at raves. And there, there were some bad effects there because, of course, if you're dehydrated and you're you know, taking a bunch of other substances, then it starts to look like ecstasy can be this dangerous thing. And so that's what triggered this conservative political response and the, the, the banning of this substance along with psychedelic drugs. But up until that point, the actual main use of MDMA was, was as an aid to therapy, both individual level psychotherapy and also couples counseling where couples would come and prepare with the, th the therapist, talk about the sorts of things they wanted to work through. And then they would learn about what kinds of effects the drug would have on them. They would then consolidate any lessons learned from the experience with the therapist afterwards. And this was kind of a mainstream use of the drug for quite some time. And, and then because of this backlash that I mentioned, when MDMA and the psychedelic drugs were, were listed as Schedule One substances, which is that they're presumed to have no therapeutic value. And I'll just say that was known to be false at the time. The whole therapeutic community and psychiatrists and researchers at Harvard and other fancy institutions were lobbying the government and saying, well, what do you mean it has no therapeutic value? That's how we're using it. You know, it may also be misused in a party context in a way that could be dangerous, but we're not seeing that in our, in our use of the drug. So, all the research into this basically got cut off for you know several decades. And it's only recently that some researchers who have been really working for a long time to lay the groundwork for getting the government to be more open to redoing some of these old studies in a more rigorous way, well, they're starting to get some approval. And so in the last five to 10 years, you've seen at first a trickle and now really a, a flood of studies coming out looking at the therapeutic effects of MDMA, starting with people who have really severe psychological conditions that don't seem amenable to treatment otherwise. And so the, the, the paradigmatic case here is post-traumatic stress disorder. So the early studies are, are, are looking at, you know, people who are coming back from war, first responders, who are taking dozens of different medications to try to manage their symptoms. Some of them have been suicidal and they're, they're drinking themselves to death because they just cannot seem to deal with the trauma. And what these researchers are finding is that if you bring somebody who's dealing with these really deep traumas into a normal talk therapy setting, it often is not very helpful because 
the thing about trauma is that it's hard to talk about. You know, if somebody asks you about your experience in the war zone, rather than saying, sure, let's work through that and, and talk about my experience and kind of resolve this trauma, you basically shut down. This, this hair trigger fear response is activated where everything in your psyche says, I don't want to go there. I don't want to touch that. It's like an open wound. And so what MDMA does is neurochemically, it, uh, it causes a, a massive release of serotonin. And the effect of that subjectively is that that hair trigger fear response is temporarily disabled for, you know, two or three hours over the course of the session. And so if someone says, tell me about your time in the war, instead of just flipping out and shutting down, you find that that response doesn't happen. And, and you can begin to approach some of these emotions that are otherwise buried under the surface or really difficult to resolve. So that's, that's what's happening now in terms of the mainstream scientific research into MDMA as an adjunct to psychotherapy for really serious mental conditions. What we're saying in the book, though, is that we should think of trauma as something that's not just an on or off switch. You know, you meet some diagnostic criteria and you either have trauma or you don't. Trauma is something that falls along a spectrum. And there are a whole range of, of difficulties that befall us in our lives, including in a relational context, that can be subject to a similar kind of avoidance, where it may well be that we need to work on something with our partner of 20 years, but we've fallen into this habit where we just gripe at each other and bring up the complaint and it triggers the same old defensive response and it's not productive. And in a sense, we are falling out of love with each other. We're just so uh, uh, you know, frustrated at the other person. We've fallen into this habit. We've lost our sense of open-mindedness about hearing their perspective. And sure, maybe we try talk therapy and we go on romantic vacations and we do all the things you're supposed to do. But suppose you've tried all that stuff and you and your partner believe that there's something worth trying for here. You don't want to just abandon the relationship. It's not that you think it really is over. What we're suggesting is what if we could bring couples back into the lab and look not just at people who have otherwise incurable mental conditions, but people who are dealing with just the range of life difficulties and see if we can revive that old model from the 1980s and start to see what are the couples who might benefit from MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or couples counseling? And could it help them actually you know, remove some of the barriers to intimacy that may have built up like so much dross over, over the years of their relationship? That is so fascinating, and you describe it so well. And one of the things that really strikes me is because, you know, I grew up and came of age at a time when, you know, I kind of always learned of ecstasy and MDMA as being this illegal, illicit substance. And so, you know, I wasn't aware of the prior history of therapeutic usage. And it's so interesting when we go back and look at the history of psychology and therapy and see some of the things that we did in the past that today we look back on and you know, a lot of people find it to be controversial and wonder how that ever came to be. And, you know, a related example to that would be that nude psychotherapy was a thing in the 1960s and 70s in the United States. And it was actually covered in mainstream media and it had the backing of the president of the American Psychological Association at the time. Abraham Maslow was the president, the guy who did the hierarchy of hierarchy, needs. Right. Yeah. And he was a big supporter of nude psychotherapy. But in the 80s, it went out of vogue and, you know, today would be considered unethical. And so it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, how these drugs like MDMA were previously used in a therapeutic context, but there was this total 180 when the laws and other things changed. But now we're kind of getting back to that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of what's going on. And you're right to raise 
the point that how we think about drugs definitely depends on the cultural context and the historical moment. Because one point we raise in the book is that drugs, this word drugs, it just refers to chemicals and chemicals that you can ingest and that have some sort of psychological or physiological effect. And, you know, we're, we're comfortable with one class of drugs, which are the drugs we call medicine. And, you know, which drugs count as medicine or are described as medicine versus which drugs are thought of as being quote unquote recreational or non-medical. Well, that's a, that's a value-based judgment. That's a political judgment that isn't down necessarily to any specific property of the chemical itself. And so what you're seeing is this interesting shift here where, you know, you and I grew up in an era where, you know, just like you, when I heard of MDMA or ecstasy, I thought, well, that's just this dangerous thing. That's a, it's a bad drug that people who are really, you know, um, violating the rules might, might use. But now what we're seeing is this concerted effort among policymakers and, and researchers to, to try to help people see that this very same drug may also have medicinal value if it's used in a certain way, if it's used with the, the proper therapeutic context, if it's used in such a way that you know exactly what dose you should be using so as to have a, a likelier positive rather than negative experience and so forth. And so that shift is something we're right in the middle of experiencing. So let's talk about whether there are any drugs beyond MDMA that can help in treating certain relationship difficulties. Uh, for example, in your book, you talk about drugs that can potentially target feelings of jealousy. And we know that jealousy is a huge and sometimes very destructive issue in relationships. So how can a drug treatment help a problem like jealousy? Right. This raises a lot of interesting questions because Jealousy, of course, isn't usually thought of as something that's a medical problem. I mean, I, as far as I understand, someone told me uh, as, as a response to my making this claim that some sort of pathological jealousy really is in the, the psychiatrist's Bible, the DSM. And so there may well be diagnostic criteria for some particularly extreme forms of jealousy. But let's, let's set that aside and just focus on the regular old kind of jealousy that many of us are used to that may not meet some diagnostic criteria, but which nevertheless can be absolutely destructive to our relationships. Well, there's a case study that we go over in the book of a, a man whose wife wanted to catch up with an old high school boyfriend. And he thought that that was fine until he noticed that he just started to fall into this jealous cycle where he was constantly haranguing her and trying to find out all the details of every sexual experience she'd ever had. And he's having these intrusive, repetitive thoughts. And they've been married for some decades. And she got to the point where she said, listen, if you keep harassing me like this, I will divorce you. And so he said, okay, I need to go get some help. So he went to a psychiatrist. And what, what the psychiatrist noticed was that these symptoms of jealousy are a lot like the symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. And it may well be that jealousy and obsessive compulsive disorder rely on similar underlying neurochemical processes, or maybe processes that aren't functioning as well as they could, where you get stuck in a kind of a loop. I mean, one thing about OCD is you may engage in repetitive behaviors, despite consciously thinking to yourself, I really wish I weren't doing this. But nevertheless, at, at the lower level, doing those repetitive behaviors kind of calm your anxiety. And similarly with jealousy, you might think to yourself, I don't want to be haranguing my partner and having these intrusive thoughts and thinking about every sexual experience they've ever had. But, but you sort of have to get it off your chest and you just keep provoking them and, and asking them all these questions. And that can be very destructive to a relationship. So based on this idea that there may be something, uh, some kind of overlap in OCD and in, in jealousy, the psychiatrist uh, treated the man, and it's very interesting how it's written in the notes here, as if for OCD. 
And so in addition to cognitive behavioral therapy, there are also drugs, the same sorts of drugs that are used for antidepressant medication, namely selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And the combination of the talk therapy and these SSRIs seem to help the man recover from his jealousy. And what was, what was curious about this case was that the psychiatrist couldn't really diagnose the person with jealousy. There's not you know, a medical code you can write down with you know person dealing with jealousy. So he had to be inventive and treat the person as though he had OCD. And so this just kind of highlights this, this point that I'm making, which is that the drugs that we consider to be medicine have a whole range of effects on our neurochemistry, on our psychology, and on our relationships. It's just that when we test these drugs for some specific therapeutic purpose, we tend to have a survey or a questionnaire that gets folded into the study design where we're we're looking for the effect of the drug on a particular set of symptoms that we theoretically think the drug might affect. But the point is that we might just as well have included, you know, 15 other questionnaires about all sorts of other things the drug might also be affecting, including interpersonal variables. And the, the mere fact that we don't measure those effects doesn't mean they aren't happening. And so what we're trying to say in the book is we need to, as part of just understanding even workaday humdrum drugs that are probably overprescribed like SSRIs, you know, we shouldn't just be asking, how does this affect this person's symptoms of OCD or depression? We should be saying, how does this very same drug affect people in their relational contexts? And actually systematically beginning to measure some of those things rather than, again, going forward in the dark. That is such an important point, because if you don't ask the right questions, you won't find the answers. And it's so true whenever we're talking about any of these drugs that we tend to focus pretty narrowly when we're talking about things like side effects. And it's usually in the form of other physical health symptoms that you might be experiencing. And in in the case of medications for treatment of psychological issues, you know, focused fairly narrowly. And so looking at what are the interpersonal effects of some of these drugs, I think is really, really important. And hopefully we start gathering more of that data in the future. But something else I want to talk about with all of this is, you know, what are the implications of all of this? And, you know, certainly when we're talking about a drug like MDMA that is legally regulated, you know, there are going to be implications in terms of being able to conduct the research and also eventually get the drug in the hands of the people who might want to use it for a therapeutic purpose. But it also raises a lot of ethical and philosophical questions about love and relationships, and it's going to make some people really uncomfortable. So, for example, some people might say that if you have to use a drug to make your relationship work, then maybe it's not the right relationship for you. And so maybe rather than trying to treat this biochemically, you should be treating it with a new relationship. So what's your response to concerns like that? The first thing I would say is that I'm sympathetic to the concern that a drug might cause us to engage with our partner in a way that's maybe inauthentic or that is putting a band-aid over a situation where what we really need to do is to rip the band-aid off and make a bigger, more systematic change in our life. That, I think, is a legitimate worry. And it's something that has been a, a long part of the discussion about the use of SSRIs to treat depression. And I think this is actually a helpful example because there are two different broad kinds of effects that people will describe with SSRIs with respect to their feelings of depression. The first one is is the one that I think people are are thinking about when they they raise these ethical concerns, which is that the drugs seem to just dull our emotions 
when it might be the case that our emotions are actually giving us real information. So let's say that we're depressed because we're in a shitty situation. We have a, just a job that isn't good for us. Our, our, our partner is, is poorly matched and, and we don't have shared values and you know we're, we're not exercising and all this other stuff that's going on. Well, that feeling of sadness or depression is like information. And it's, it's maybe telling us you need to make some serious changes in your life. Like you need to quit your job and, you know, pursue something that's more meaningful to you, or you need to consider whether a different relationship might be, might be better for you. And if you just take a drug that, that dulls that very information so that it's less salient to you, you can sort of see how sure it might allow you to kind of stumble forward in your, in your non-ideal circumstances, but it's not going to motivate you. And in fact, may may disincentivize you from making the deeper structural changes that you really need to be made in your life. So that's one kind of effect. I think that's a serious concern. And that's the sort of thing that we should be alert to when thinking about the interpersonal effects of drugs as well. Now, here's a different kind of concern or interpretation that is sometimes raised. Some people have been experiencing depression. And what they say is, it's not clear why I'm feeling this way. You know, in terms of just the objective features of my life, everything's going fine. I can't think of any particular thing that I should change, but I'm just dragged down by this depression that feels like a force outside myself. And the depression is, is like a blanket that's, that's, that's cloaking my true self. Whereas I think of myself as a cheerful person. I think of myself as somebody who, when I was a kid, I used to you know, play and I was so carefree. And then for whatever reason, something's going on with me that this depression is, is, is blocking me from my own authentic emotions. And for some people, when they take an SSRI, if they've tried all the other things and they're among the subset of people for whom the drug is an effective treatment of depression, what they, what they will say phenomenologically is that it feels like that blanket has been lifted, that they feel like the inauthentic thing was vanquished by the drug and the drug allowed them to more clearly access their true emotions or their true self or whatever is their authentic way of being in the world. And so a similar kind of thing is going to happen in the case of medically mediated romantic relationships is that, you know, in the case of MDMA, if what you're dealing with is a relational trauma where you're avoiding dealing with the deeper structural issue in the relationship, you know, maybe one or the other of you is not able to talk about your true desires because you're embarrassed and you're embarrassed because you're raised in a conservative household that made you feel that you should be ashamed of your, your sexual preferences. And so you don't talk about them with your partner. And that's, you know, having all sorts of side effects and ramifications that are making the relationship not, not flourish. And, and let's say that under a appropriately contextualized and conducted MDMA enhanced session, you find that your that that cognitive block and that sense of shame and fear and 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 feeling shut down and traumatized by past experiences, if that's temporarily lifted, so that you can communicate more honestly and straightforwardly with your partner about what's really going on with you, and you can do it where you're both in a state of kind of compassion and and enhanced empathy and so forth. Well. You know, it's not clear to me that that's like an inauthentic experience you're having and that what you should have just done is ditched your partner because who knows, maybe you break up with that relationship and then you go get in another relationship and face the very same problem. So sometimes it's it's not the case that just abandoning our commitment to a partner is is all things considered the right thing to do. Sometimes that is the band-aid. Sometimes that is the shortcut. And what we really need to do is think of love and relationships as things that require agency and understanding and work and effort. And at some point, we, we have to make an all things considered judgment. We have to say, sure, there's benefits and costs to either staying in or leaving the relationship. But all things considered, do I think that there's something of value here? And if, if my partner and I agree that there is, and we're willing to put in the work to try to 
help the relationship flourish, then we have to ask ourselves, what are the range of tools that we want to bring to bear to that project? And what we're suggesting in the book is, yeah, talk therapy and romantic vacations and all the sorts of things that you read about in magazines. Sure, try all those things. But we're, we're starting to get enough scientific information about a different modality that can be explored for working on a relationship. And it's certainly possible that some of these drug-induced effects could cause us to feel separated from our emotions or inauthentic or like we're relating to our partner in a way that doesn't feel grounded in the history and the narrative of our own relationship. But based on the findings so far in the individual level cases with people with PTSD, the overwhelming majority of the cases tend to be of this second kind I've been talking about, where the person feels like the inauthentic stuff of life was dissolved or diminished. And what they were able to do is to recapture or embrace or explore you know, the, the truth of their situation. And so if that was happening in a relationship, I would, be, I would be disinclined to think of that as an inauthentic drug experience. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is we need to have very complex, nuanced discussions about how we might incorporate these drugs or drug treatments into a therapeutic context. And they're not for everyone. And sometimes use of these drugs, we, we don't want to see people use them to the extent that it prevents them from working on deeper underlying issues in the relationship that need to be addressed. I often make a similar point when I'm talking about drugs for sex therapy. You know, for example, there is widespread use of erectile dysfunction medication even in men who don't actually have ED. And sometimes men turn to it because it's a handy tool for helping them to become and, and stay aroused. But what's underlying it is really more of a psychological issue and some anxieties centering around sex. And to the extent that you come to rely too much on the medication, then you never deal with that underlying problem or issue uh, that was there in your sex life in the first place. And that isn't going to go away. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's such a good analogy. And just to add an exclamation point to that, I, the point you're making is that's going to be a very context sensitive kind of tailored to the individual judgment that you have to make. Like for some people, using a drug may very well be the sort of thing that will help them, uh, all things considered. But for other people, depending on the relationship dynamics and the specific kinds of things that they're either dealing with or avoiding, somebody in your position who's who's giving you know individualized therapeutic advice to somebody might say, listen, in your case, it looks like you're using the drug as a crutch. Whereas for somebody else, that might not be the case. And there's no sort of omnibus general way you can make that evaluation. You can't say the drugs are always bad or inauthentic and we should all just use natural remedies. And, you know, nor should you say we should we should never use natural remedies and always you should rely on on drugs. It's going to be it's going to depend on the person, the circumstance, the dynamic and the relationship. Absolutely. And we have much more to discuss, including the opposite of love drugs, the anti-love drugs, if you will, and how they can potentially help you get over a breakup. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Looking to boost your bedroom performance? Our friends at Promescent have you covered. Promescent has an extensive line of sexual wellness products, including a female arousal gel, libido-boosting supplements, massage oils, condoms, and much more. They also have a popular delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize this spray for your body to achieve the desired effect. And when used as directed, you don't need to worry about it transferring to your partner. Check it out and you'll see why it's recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals and has thousands of five-star reviews. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. 
They also ship all orders in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is ethicist Brian Earp, and we are talking about love drugs and anti-love drugs. So let's talk a bit about this concept of an anti-love drug. And can you just explain what you mean by that term that you use in the book? Sure. So uh, an anti-love drug, in our view, is anything that diminishes or depresses any of the kind of biological subcomponents of love. So that would be something that might depress libido, attraction, or attachment. And so there are different kinds of drugs that may have effects on those subsystems of love. But at the, at the bigger perspective, the idea is it's something that would help you either leave a relationship that is, an, is a bad relationship that you should leave, or that might help you recover from a relationship after having left it. So that's the kind of case that we're thinking of. So let's talk about the usage of these drugs for getting over a breakup first. So, you know, what's an example of a drug that can potentially be used to help people get over a very traumatic breakup? Sure. There's there's some work happening right now by a, a psychiatrist in Canada to use a drug called propranolol, which is a beta blocker, which kind of calms aspects of anxiety for, for some people. And he's engaged in something called memory reconsolidation therapy. Now, this is something that's going to quickly start to sound like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, where you're going in there and, you know, deleting certain kinds of memories. It's a little bit like that, but uh, the difference is that rather than erasing certain kinds of memories or episodes from your life altogether, the point of this therapy is to preserve the memory so the content is there. But if the content of the memory is destructive to you emotionally, the idea is that the drug should calm that emotional response down so that you can revisit the memory, you can reflect on it, you can think about what are the lessons that you might want to learn from it, but you don't just have this traumatized response to it every time you reflect on, you know, that time your partner cheated on you or whatever it is that you're remembering that's that's causing you such despair. And so the way it works is you go into the, the lab, you write down all these memories, you sort of call up some particular memories that you're going to want to explore. And then you take this drug, propranolol, which suppresses the kind of emotional content of the memories so that they're not so painful. And then you sort of restore the memories with that emotional content dulled or stripped away a little bit. Now, this, there's still a bunch of ethical questions here. Some people might say, you know, our memories, uh, we don't want to tamper with them at all. But I would just quickly reply to that by saying, you know, our memories are not video recordings of what happened in the past. Our memories are already pretty highly constructed, and they serve various psychological purposes. And sometimes they're skewed, and sometimes they're not exactly veridical. And some of our memories can just be traumatizing. You know, anybody who's experienced sexual assault, for example, um, can know that you know, recalling that memory and, and vividly re-experiencing all the, the the pain or the trauma or the embarrassment of the of, of the the episode, there's a point where it's not helping you anymore. There's a point where it's actually preventing you from dealing with the trauma and moving on in your life and, and establishing, you know, healthier patterns for, for, for yourself going forward. And so, you know, if you can identify those cases where the memories in the particular emotional way that they're triggering for you, if you can identify those cases where it's really dragging you down rather than giving you an opportunity to learn and to grow, then you might be a, a good candidate for this kind of a thing where the point would be you don't delete the memory, but you you strip away 
some of the more you know painful emotional subjective aspects of the memory yeah and i think another way to think about it is that you're sort of training your body how to respond in triggering situations or when a triggering thought comes to mind. And propranolol, which is a a beta blocker that is used in the treatment of high blood pressure, it's also used as an anti-anxiety medication sometimes. It's a drug that has also been used to help many performers get over stage fright. And in fact, that's actually how I got over my fear of public speaking initially. So several years ago, I talked to my doctor about you know, taking some propranolol in occasional basis when I had, say, a really big conference talk to give or I was giving a job talk and, you know, in these very high stress situations. And so what happened was I would take the pill the morning of and then I would go in and give my talk. And what was really interesting for me personally, having experienced that, is that when I used to get on stage in front of a group of people, I would have this really overpowering anxiety. My heart started just beating out of my chest. And, you know, you have all of those symptoms of anxiety. And it made it really hard for me to be myself and to focus. And so at that point in time, I had to script out every single word I was going to say during a presentation because I couldn't think on my feet because I was so overwhelmed with anxiety. And what I found was when I started taking propranolol that I would be able to get up in front of an audience of people and feel like myself. And it was this really liberating thing. Like I'm still in this very stressful situation, but my body has been trained to not exhibit all of those symptoms of anxiety. And so just using this for a couple of months on an occasional basis was the key for me getting over that stage fright. And it, you know, reduced all of the trauma that I used to experience in getting up in front of an audience. So I just thought I would mention that because it's another application of this drug and how it can help us to to train our bodies to respond in a variety of traumatic situations and settings. It's, it's such a good example because it, it gets to the heart of something we stress in the book, which is that whatever is the, the healing effect that we're looking for, it's, it's best if the drug isn't solely responsible for, for causing that effect so that you have to just be on some drug for the rest of your life. What you're talking about is the use of a drug as something that facilitates a, a, a real change. You know, a training is the right idea. It's like if you can train your own sort of naturally occurring systems to to respond to the world in a way that's less traumatic and then wean yourself off the drug as a, as a sort of aid or facilitator, that seems kind of like the best of all, all worlds there where you're using the drug not as a crutch, but as a, as a tool, as a, as a training device. And then the idea would be that, you know, whatever lesson you've learned is something that then you continue to consolidate and, and practice and live out in your life, even when the, the drug isn't active anymore. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting. I notice just before I'm about to go give a big public talk that sometimes my body starts to do like this initial thing where it's going to enter that fight or flight response, but then it just gets shut down immediately. So like there's this little tiny twang, but then my brain kicks in and says, nope, you're not supposed to feel that way. You know, at least that's kind of the way that I experience it. And I think it's fascinating, but it really opened up this whole new direction that I could take in my life where I didn't have this paralyzing fear of being in front of an audience. And I think it's just, you know, a good example of how if used appropriately, these drugs can help you to 
move on with your life and to do bigger and better things and improve your life in ways that maybe you wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Right. But since we're talking about, you know, how these drugs can help us to move on from traumatic situations, I I also wanted to address the issue of people in abusive relationships, because you also talk about this a bit in your book too. So what's the process and how, how is it different for helping people to get out of abusive situations where they've got this bond, like they love a partner who is bad for them and is a risk to their physical and psychological health? Right. Uh, so we started thinking about this in a very practical sense because we somebody reached out to us. I, I think I got a, a message on Facebook from someone that was it was in a, another language. I think it was an Eastern European language, where the person had seen some sort of headline based on our earlier papers, and they were kind of theoretical papers, academic papers, talking about the possibility of some kind of anti-love drug. And the person said, "Listen, I'm in this relationship with my husband who's bad for me, like objectively." not good. He's misogynistic. He doesn't doesn't uh, treat me the way that I deserve. But the thought of not being in a relationship with him is just crippling and disabling to me. I can't, I'm so attached to him that the thought of actually getting out of the relationship is is almost inconceivable to me. And so we were thinking about this. And so actually this person said, you know, do you have an anti-love drug? I need one. And we've actually got plenty of messages like this from people from time to time who say, okay, so you're writing about these so-called anti-love drugs. Like I need one in my life. And so this got us thinking really carefully about the ethics of this situation. So one thing that that might immediately come to mind is certainly if somebody's being abusive, if somebody's, you know, hurting you or harming you, it's certainly not your responsibility to go find some sort of medication to to solve the problem from your end. From in terms of who's responsible here, the person who's abusing you has the obligation to stop doing that. And if social services or the criminal law uh, need to come onto the scene, then that's that's the first pass here. So one way that we should not think about these cases is that a person who's being abused somehow has an obligation to drug themselves into a stupor so that they can, you know, deal with the situation on their own. But imagine that you know you're in a, in, a, in a relationship that isn't good for you. Maybe, maybe it's not overtly abusive, but maybe it's all things considered a really bad relationship for you. And you know you need to get out of it, but you find yourself just desperately attached to the person in this kind of low-level way that you can't seem to to break. Well, if you've tried everything else and it hasn't worked and you were able to take a drug that would kind of directly dull those feelings of attachment, at least long enough, say, for you to get out of the relationship and start to set up your life elsewhere and form new bonds and integrate yourself in a healthy community, maybe that's the sort of case where it could be, you know, in principle, ethical for you to, to do that as long as it was voluntary and as long as the kind of social and, and, and legal avenues had been explored where necessary. Maybe an even stronger case, and one that we also touch on in the book, is the case of people who have, you know, uncontrollable pedophilic desires. These are ones where, you know, and sometimes people will say that they have a love for children. Uh, automatically, people get very skeptical and say, well, it's not love because it's, it's almost inherently abusive if you were to act on any of these kinds of feelings. But at least in the, in the minds of many people who have these feelings, they, they feel a, a, a draw toward children that's both sexual and emotional, and yet they know that they oughtn't to act on these feelings because they, they appreciate that it could be very harmful to, to the child. And so there's a, a, a term that is, is sometimes used of uh, sort of the self-hating pedophile, or increasingly I'm hearing the term the virtuous pedophile, where this is somebody who has these feelings, but they know that they, they shouldn't act on them, 
and that it might be best if all things considered, the feelings themselves were diminished. And so there are some largely experimental types of treatments which look at trying to, at the very least, sort of block libido for people who have these misdirected or potentially very risky, damaging type attractions. And so that's a case where, you know, if it were voluntary and we could all get on board with the claim that these these types of desires are potentially very dangerous, then you might have a case here where where if what was needed to address those feelings was some kind of chemical intervention, then there's a case to be made that that, that could be pursued. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up this topic of reducing sexual desire. And I, I think the example that you provided makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of how this could work and how it has a societal benefit. But I'm also interested in sort of the flip side of that, which is could some of these drugs aimed at targeting sexual desire be used in a way to impose a certain sexual morality on people? So for example, using these drugs to lower desire in people who have anything that is perceived to be a deviant sexual desire or that they've been made to believe is deviant or people who have what some might consider to be problematic pornography use. So, you know, how do we manage the ethical implications there of imposing morality on people through the use of these drugs? And, you know, one other example I would tie in with this would be, you know, going back to the use of MDMA in relationships some might view that as a way of imposing monogamy on on people as well and saying that you know monogamous marriage is the ideal and you shouldn't get divorced and uh, all of these other things so what are your thoughts around that issue of usage of these drugs to impose a certain sexual or relationship morality on people sure well just let's stick with the example of mdma in couples counseling mdma isn't just sort of a glue that brings couples together no matter what. And certainly it isn't the sort of thing that necessarily reinforces the status quo. One thing that might happen is that suppose what's really best for you and or your partner is to have an open relationship or perhaps to um, explore polyamory, let's say. One thing that might be preventing you from exploring that possibility is the prevailing social norms, which are bearing down on you so heavily and, and your feelings of fear of expressing your, your true desires to your partner are, are holding you back. Well, one possibility is that an MDMA-enhanced psychotherapy session could be a safe space for you and your partner to explore the reality of your needs and desires. And maybe what you come to at the end of that conversation is, is a decision that you want to do something other than what you're currently doing. And so, uh, so that's, that's certainly a possibility in that case where drugs might be used as ways to help us reimagine the world rather than simply reinforce the existing norms. Now, the, the risk of reinforcing problematic norms is certainly very real. And a case that we discuss in the book is the example of these ultra-Orthodox uh, communities, Jewish communities in Israel, where same-sex desire and even masturbation are considered sinful. And so what you'll have is these young yeshiva students who will go to their their rabbis or their counselors and they'll say, listen, I'm, I'm struggling with these evil desires from their perspective. And it's making me very depressed because, you know, I have all these desires that I can't act on, and, or at least that I believe I shouldn't act on. And what's happening here is that in, in some of these cases, the, the psychiatrists will coordinate with the religious leaders of the community, and they'll say, well, we'll give these students a, a heavy dose of SSRIs. And 
there's a there's a sense in which there's an on-label use of the drug and that supposedly it's treating the depression that the person really is feeling. But I think what a, a progressive-minded person would say about this case is that the only reason the person is experiencing depression is because they they are operating under oppressive norms which aren't which aren't allowing them to fully explore and express their their natural desires let's say and so the side effect of ssris which is very common and which can be bad for relationships for those who who want to have a sexual dynamic in the relationship is it can it can directly lower libido as well so partly what's going on in in this religious case is that this supposed side effect of the drug becomes one of the intended effects of the drug the the idea is you can't maybe reorient the person's sexual desires to to the normatively approved way within the community, but you can just kind of kill their libido altogether by using this drug and under the auspices of, of treating depression. And so this isn't a hypothetical case. I mean, this is going on right now where medications are being used to directly suppress the libido or the sex drive of those who have what are considered to be non-normative sexual desires within the community. And this points to the lesson that, you know, all of this discussion is happening against a backdrop of social and political values, where if you want to ask, when should we use a drug or when is it okay to use a drug, you have to first have some sort of working consensus on what counts as an improvement, you know, what counts as good. And the thing that you find in a liberal society is that you often have very serious disagreements about what counts as better versus worse, or what counts as permissible versus impermissible. So, you know, by the lights of this ultra-Orthodox community, dulling same-sex attraction is a good thing. But from the lights of any reasonably progressive-minded person, that's that's an, that's a, a, an abhorrent idea that you should be using medication to dull the, the non-harmful, perfectly appropriate, and valuable uh, sexual desires of somebody who has non-heterosexual orientation. And so it, there's a sense in which this background debate in society about what should the moral values be is something that can't ever you know, be fully dismissed or waved away. It's constantly present in shaping what, what appear to be merely local ethical decisions about whether you should use a drug under what conditions. So, so a lot of this refers up to the wider question in society of what should our values be? How do we agree on what a healthy relationship looks like? And that's a much bigger question. That is a really big question, too. And I, I love and appreciate all the nuance you have in your answers and all of these really thought-provoking insights that you've shared with us. And, you know, as you've been speaking, something I've been thinking about is how when people talk about the future of sex and relationships, they tend to talk about it as being all around, you know, technology. <laughs> but what you're suggesting and in, in what your book suggests is that it might actually be a lot more about chemicals than anything. And the use of chemicals to regulate sexual desire and regulate the attachments and feelings we have to our partners is something that really requires a lot of further study before we really understand the full ramifications and effects and how these things can be used and when they should be used. And I think it's going to be a debate that we're going to be having a lot about in uh, the coming years. Right. We're trying to kick off not just greater scientific research into what are the effects of these drugs on relationships, but at the same time, a, an ethical conversation. I mean, that's, that's what this book is all about, is inviting people with different backgrounds and normative commitments and moral worldviews to, to talk about the reality of this emerging technology and the, the potential interpersonal effects of these drugs 
and, and ask ourselves, you know, who should be able to use them under what conditions? You know, when should they be prohibited? Which kinds of relationships are are ones that we should say they definitely should not have any kind of drug involved? And and the point is that we have to figure that out because these drugs already exist. We're already using drugs that have effects on relationships, but we're not. We don't have a clear ethical framework for how or when or why we want to be more intentional about the effects of, of these drugs. And so that's that's what this book is all about, is a call to conversation. Well, you've given us all a lot to think about. And thank you so much for being here for this and for sharing your perspective with my listeners. Can you please tell us where we can go to learn a little bit more about your work and where people can find a copy of your new book? Sure. Yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter and my handle is Brian David Earp. My middle name is David and E-A-R-P is my last name. I try to put all of my academic papers up for free on academia.edu and ResearchGate. So those are places you can go to, to read my writing for free. And then the book is available on Amazon in North America and England and, and Europe. In England, it's published by Manchester University Press, in case you need to look that up. And in the U.S., it's Stanford University Press. But you can, you can look it up on, on Amazon. Well, thank you again for your time and your valuable insights. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn all about the science of sexual fantasy and desire. And be sure to check out Brian's book, Love Drugs, to learn more about the fascinating debate surrounding this topic. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.